So we'll be doing Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 because they're kind of mirrors of each other. Um, if you were here on Sunday, you know that Daniel 7 begins with a nightmare. He has a bad, bad dream. Um, you ever have bad dreams? So this morning, uh, normally my alarm is set at 530 but I have a daughter who's got a job right now, and she goes at, it starts at five, so she wakes up early. She woke me up. And I think that's the only reason why I remember this dream. Uh, but I had a nightmare this morning, and the nightmare was this. We had to go back to Fruitdale. That was literally my nightmare. I'm just like, oh, man. Oh, that was so like, ah, and my nightmare. It was much worse than Daniel's nightmares. Nothing in comparison. It's so funny. Okay. So, from chapter 7 through chapter 12, there are a series of four dreams slash visions that Daniel has. Uh, Chapter 7 is the hinge. From chapters 2 through 7, Daniel is written in Aramaic. Chapter 1 and chapters 8 through 12 are in Hebrew. So he holds the Aramaic through seven, but he's really moving to a whole new idea, a whole new way of writing. The first six chapters are very, it's narrative, it's this happened and this happened, it's a story. And then from chapter seven up, it's prophetic and visions and beasts and wow, what is all this stuff, all right? And the point of chapter six through seven through 12 is simple. It's the future. Does anybody want to know the future? Want to be Biff from uh, whatever it was, Back to the Future 3, or he's get the almanac, and do you want that? That's what we're given. And so this first dream in chapter 7 is in 553 BC. It's under Belshazzar. It tells us that in verse 1. And we looked at Sunday from verses 1 through 18. I'm not going to repeat those, but I'll just recap them. So four beasts are seen by Daniel in his nightmare. And each beast comes out of the sea. And very often in the Bible, the sea represents the the crazy, tumultuous Gentile nation, just the writhing of these Gentile nations that are warring with each other, all this trouble. So that's what the sea represents. And out of them come these beasts. And each beast represents an empire. Like we have that today still. Like Animals still represent countries, right? The United States is represented as a bald eagle, right? Russia is represented as a, the bear of Russia. Uh, China is represented as a dragon. So to this day, we still have this idea that there can be kind of the the nature almost of a kingdom can be animal-like, can be represented as an animal. So in chapter 7, Each empire is represented as this beast. They're the same exact empires in chapter 2. But in chapter 2, they're represented as an image, a human form. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. So it's man's perspective on empire is, oh, it's this beautiful image. God's perspective on empire is they're beastly. They devour. They crush. They hurt generally. That's what empires do. So it's God's view versus humans' view. And each one is important. The the lion with the wings in chapter 7 is Babylon. If you've ever looked at pictures of where they've done archaeological digs in Babylon, they found lots of these images of a lion with wings. So it represents it. And then the image talks about uh, the image... Uh, being plucked up and a mind of a man given it to it. It's retelling the story of Nebuchadnezzar from chapter four. So that's the first beast. The second beast is this lumbering bear. It's the Medo-Persian empire. Um, They were a lumbering bear of an empire. Uh, The Medo-Persians, they would take just, they would just bludgeon other empires into submission. They had massive armies, sometimes numbering in the millions. And this is what they would do. When they would defeat an enemy, they would take that enemy army and they would march it right in front of their army when they encountered a new 
enemy. And they would literally just push that old army into the new enemy and just have them mowed down, take all their arrows, take all their spears, just work them so that all that old army was killed and then they would fight the new army. So just a brutal empire. Has three ribs in its mouth, probably the three big empires it defeats, Babylon, Egypt, and Libya. One side's higher than the other because the Medo side was very weak and the Persian side was very strong. So that's the second one. Third one is a leopard. And it represents the fast, very disciplined army of Alexander the Great. And if you don't know him, he was unbelievable, Alexander the Great. There's a story told of him when he marched on this city and he demanded that the king surrender to him. And the king said, why should I surrender to you? You have this small 35,000 person army. I have this massive city with this big wall around it. Why should I surrender to you? And Alexander the Great did this. He looked at his army. He said, about face, march. And they began to march for this cliff. And he started to march him at this cliff. And they marched until the front rows just began to fall off. And these soldiers were falling to their death off this cliff. And then he said, halt, about face, forward march and brought them back. And the king saw that discipline and saw the allegiance that his army had to Alexander the Great, and he just surrendered. He said, I'm not beating this crew. They're insane. So that's Alexander the Great, just a unbelievably disciplined, incredible guy. In 10 years, he conquers the known world from Europe to the Indus River in India. 10 years, like unprecedented speed. All right, so you have those three empires, But it's the fourth one that grabs Daniel's attention, right? So if you look at verse 19 of chapter 7, where we left off on Sunday, Daniel says this, then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. So now he's asking, there's this one beast that doesn't make sense. I can understand the lion. I can understand the leopard. I can understand the bear, but I don't even know what this last one is. It's crazy. There's a danger when you begin to read these things. And the danger is this. Have you ever seen dinosaurs that are colored in? They like have like a red crescent or yellow down their back. Ever seen that? Can you tell color from bones? No. It always bothers me when dinosaurs have colors. It's the OCD in me. I'm like, you don't know the color, right? You're going places that bones cannot direct you. Well, at times, people, when it comes to these images and these thoughts on prophecy, I say, you're going places that that did not take you. You're going too far. You're coloring in the dinosaur. So I try to personally not make conjecture or go further than the text allows you to go. So I'm going to try not to color the dinosaur, which may disappoint some of you. But I'll try to just say, this is what I think the text tells us it's actually saying. All right? So let's jump in, take a closer look at this fourth one, which a lot of people just call the super beast, because it's not like anything else. There's no actual, like, it's like an, there's none of that. It's just, it looks like this. So here it goes. Verse 20. And about the 10 horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, And before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and seemed greater than its companions. And as I looked, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the most high. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the force fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms 
It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. Very important word. He shall be different from the former ones. He shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the laws and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all his dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. The fourth beast, what is it? I think it's a T-Rex. Seems like one to me. All right? But don't color it in. We don't know what color it is. So I'm going to try to give you a quick play-by-play on this. And then chapter 8 is really the mirror. It's just saying the same thing twice. Uh, But first, you have to know this. Not everybody agrees on how to interpret prophecy. Do you know that? There's a lot of debate. And there are good people that love Jesus, live for his kingdom, that see things very differently when it comes to the way everything's going to play out in the end, right? I'm going to give you the four major ways. So if you're talking to somebody and they're talking about prophecy in a way that you don't understand or you're not accustomed to, it's probably because they look at things from a different lens. So there are four major ways to look at prophecy. And from chapter 7 through 12, we're in prophecy in Daniel. So you should know these four. There's a fifth, but it's a very minor one. I'll mention it too. Here are the main four. Number one, preterists. When you think of preterists, just think, P for the past, or I don't want to go, go down a rabbit hole, but partial preterists. So what a partial preterist believes is this. It's real simple. All the prophecy in the Bible was fulfilled by AD 70. When Titus came into Israel, destroyed the temple as Jesus predicted in Matthew 24, it was all done. And there's only one event left, and that's the return of Jesus Christ. That's a preterist. If you want to read somebody who's really, really good on this, Dr. Ken Gentry. He is phenomenal. Read the best on things that you don't understand. Don't read the straw men. Read the best. He's one of the best, Dr. Ken Gentry. And he actually dates the book of Revelation very, very, very um, convincingly to 65 AD. Does a phenomenal job of it. Because that's kind of required if you're going to believe in what partial predators believe. All right, so that's number one. Preterist past. When you read the Bible, all the prophecies already gone. It's done, except for the return of Jesus. Number two, they're called historists. Historists divide the whole history of the world into three epics of history. And this was designed or thought of by a guy named Jehoiakim of Fior in the 12th century. So you can read about him. But he said, there are four or three ages. There's the age of God, the Old Testament. There's the age of Jesus, and that ended, started with the New Testament, and ended in 1260 AD. And then there's the age of the Holy Spirit. And according to him, it was all supposed to end in about 1840. Guess what? Didn't end, right? If you know your history in America, there's a group called the Millerites, who were, they, they were very big in their day. And the Millerites said, it's coming. It's happening in 1843. And in order to get ready, sell everything and sit in your bathtub and wait for the end. So all these people sold everything except for their bathtubs and they sat and waited. And they said, whoops, made a mistake. It's 1844. So they replayed it, didn't happen. That group got disenfranchised. They left, but there was one lady who had a heavenly vision about 
the events that were spoken of by Jehoiakim of Fior were actually completed up in the heavenly tabernacle. Her name, Ellen G. White. And out of that comes the Seventh-day Adventists. So today, the only group that are historists today are the Seventh-day Adventists. So if you've ever listened to a Seventh-day Adventist talk about prophecy, they're talking about it from a historist standpoint. And it can be very, very confusing, to be honest with you. I'm just like, what in the world? I can't follow you. So that's historists, number two. Number three is the idealist. They say this, prophecy has no dates to it. Prophecy is um, visions and dreams that help you and me live our lives better, right? It's like epistles that have the flu or epistles that are on drugs or something, right? Where it's still giving the same stuff. It's just in really colorful, crazy, feverish language. So, but there's people that are idealists. I love them. The fourth one, futurists. A futurist says there's a ton of Bible prophecy that's still to come to pass. Anybody heard of the Left Behind series? Okay, they're futurists. And so that idea of uh, uh, coming world government, and that, that's all built on a futurist interpretation of Bible prophecy. And I don't have a problem with futurists, but sometimes... I struggle with this. There seems like there can be an unhealthy focus on forcing everything to have a prophetic meaning. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's, man, Iran does something. Oh, Ezekiel 37. Like, I'm not sure if that's Ezekiel 37, right? There's like this, it's almost like this. So if you're my age and you're a kid and you wanted to watch the news, what did you have to do when you're little? Yeah, six o'clock at night, CBS, Dan Rather, NBC, Tom Brokaw, right? That was your choice. It was a half an hour of news. There was none none of this 24-7 news cycle going, right? So what happened was this. These guys knew they had a half an hour of news. So guess what they did? They chose really important stories, stories that matter. Now we have all these 24-7 news cycles. So guess what they have to do? find news, create news, cause problems, do anything possible to make there be something to talk about. Sometimes it feels like that's what prophecy does, right? And here's, here's the example I give to people that are very much on this side. I said, you know what? If news really cared, um, they'd do things very different. So if a kid got kidnapped, would that make the nightly news? Totally, right? Because what's a parent's greatest fear? that your child would be kidnapped. But what are the odds that your child will be kidnapped? They're one in two million. If news really cared, they would talk about what actually hurts kids. You know what hurts kids? Getting in a car. Your child has a one in 40,000 chance of being killed or seriously injured in a car wreck. So news would be constantly talking about, this child was hurt. You should become an Amish and stay in a buggy. That's what they'd be doing. But, but it's sensationalized, right? Because it gets your attention. Sometimes I think in the futurist realm of prophecy, there can be this very kind of like, ah, oh, sensationalism. And you end up with these Harold Camping guys, remember him, 2013? All the billboards around, the crazy, you're just like, oh my goodness, really? Edgar Weisenart, who knows him? Good for you. <laughs> He's a retired engineer become prophecy buff. He wrote a book called, it was in 1988, 88 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1988. Guess what he wrote in 1989? Yeah, 89 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1989. He kept doing that all the way through like 1998. He did this rapture report. You're just like, oh my goodness, dude, give it up. Beware of engineers doing prophecy. (laughs) Okay, so very often when people are very, very like into it, I just say, read the disciples in Acts chapter one, because they say to Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom now? Is it now? When's the time? What does Jesus say? It's not for you to know the hour or the time. The father knows that. You be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. For me, if anything takes away from my focus on Jesus and declaring him to the nations, I've gone sideways. 
as great as prophecy is, as fun as prophecy can be, if it's taken me away from Acts chapter one, the words of Jesus, be careful of it, all right? The primer, let's jump in without trying to, oh, there is a fifth one. I'll give you this one. Here's the fifth one. It's the Matt Heverliest. And this is what the Matt Heverliest are. There's one of them. Maybe I'll get one more tonight. My prophecy is super simple. Jesus is returning, and I don't know when, but it could be today. That's it. There's my whole prophetic scheme right there. Okay, that's it. Really good. 1 Thessalonians 5 says he's coming as a thief in the night. Does a thief tell you? Does he text you? Hey, would Tuesday at 3 a.m. be a good time to come? No. Right? That's what's coming. So I can be busy about my king's business today, knowing you could come back, but it's not going to change what I'm going to do because I'm, I'm going to be faithful to what you've called me to right now, what I'm doing. So I've quit the planning committee and joined the welcoming committee. Jesus, come when you want. You're welcomed. All right? So here's some obvious things from this chapter, and we'll jump into chapter eight real quick. Number one, this fourth beast is verse 19 different. The majority of Bible commentaries say the fourth beast is the Roman Empire. There is a group of people that date Daniel to 150 BC instead of 500 BC, 550 BC. They say it's Greece. They're the minority. The majority conservative Orthodox say it's Rome. Now, why is Rome different? Rome is different because every other kingdom usually had a charismatic leader, a Nebuchadnezzar, a Cyrus, right? Some kind of Alexander the Great. Rome did not. Rome had an ideal, the Roman ideal, the ideal man, the ideal soldier, what nobility was. They had this idea and everything was built around this idea, the Senate, the vote, all this stuff. They had ideals, very different, very new. If you would, it's the first time ideals would drive an empire rather than a charismatic leader driving an empire. So it's very unique in that way. Um, It's longevity. These empires come and go. Babylon's got 70 years and it's gone. How long did Rome last? Well, it was split, right? You have Rome in the west, and you've got Constantinople in the east. The western Roman Empire lasted 700 years. The eastern Roman Empire, Constantinople, lasted 1,500 years. Unprecedented. The longevity of Rome is like nothing else, right? The Pax Romana, the whole idea that Rome, we are going to spread the ideas and the peace of Rome everywhere we go, and we are going to maintain it by an iron will. You will not cross Rome, period. We will tell you what you're going to do, and you will do it. The ironness of Rome was very unique. They didn't flex. They didn't change. They had their ideas, period, no compromise. So it's different. Number two, out of it, verse 24, come these 10 horns. What are these 10 horns? There are three thoughts on the 10 horns. Number one, it's the 10 emperors that rise from Julius Caesar all the way to Diocletian. Inside the Roman Empire, once they get rid of the Senate, once that whole thing happens, they stop being uh, the Senate-controlled republic and go to a Caesar system of rule. It's those 10 emperors. That's one thought. Second thought is, it's after Rome's fall, there will be a series of 10 Rome-like empires that rise up. Number three, it's at the end of the age, there are 10 countries that unify into a renewed or revised Roman empire, and out of that revised Roman empire comes the Antichrist. Those are your three main ways of interpreting the 10 horns. I land on number two, because verse 24, it says after them. So you got this 10 horns, after them comes the Antichrist. So I see them as the subsequent empires that rise and fall. The Genghis Khans, the Charlemagnes, the Third Reich, the Isis, the, these, these Rome-like empires that are crushing, these Rome-like empires that come up in these cycles that you're never going to stop. 
So that's the way I see it. If you see it a different way, no problem, right? Number three, you've got Rome, 10 empires, and this little horn. And this little horn rises up out of them. He's different than them. He's got eyes. He's got a mouth. So it makes him into an individual. These other ones were kingdoms that rose up like the Third Reich or like uh, whatever it is, the USSR. So they're kingdoms, but this one has eyes and has a mouth. It's something, it's something else. I think it's an individual. And he's going to defeat three kings or three kingdoms or do something with three, unite them. His rule is going to last for a time, a times and a half time. He's going to have three and a half years of something that he can do really powerfully. But then, verse 26, the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. The empire will have a divine end to it. God is going to just say, I'm done, period. And then verse 27 comes. The kingdom and dominion and the greatness of this kingdom or the whole heaven shall be given to the people of saints of the most high. The last kingdom comes. And this cycle that Daniel's seen of beasts coming up and t- horns coming up and little horns coming up. Finally, it's ended. There's no more. It's done with. It's gone. It's out of here. And now the everlasting kingdom comes. To me, that's what you get from this if you don't try to color it in. There's coming for Daniel, this bad empire. can be followed by wave after wave of bad empires until there's a really, really wicked individual that shows up. And then God says enough and ends it. Daniel chapter seven. Daniel chapter eight. This happens two years later. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So I'm gonna read this, make a couple comments, and then try to button it up at the end. And I saw in the vision... And when I saw it, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward, northward, and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue him from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. This is once again the Medo-Persian Empire, and it's explained down in verse 15, right? One horn's taller, comes second. The Medes were the first. Persians came second, but they were much more powerful. They never defeated east. They always went west. South and northward, that's the way they ran. That's the way they defeated empire. So it's, it's them. They're the bully of the neighborhood for a while until verse five. And I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the West across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. He's fast. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I'd seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram and he was engaged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. This, we'll find out, is Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great, if you don't know his story, super smart guy. He was homeschooled. More power to the homeschoolers. His teacher, though, Aristotle. That helps. If you're going to be homeschooled, having Aristotle as your teacher, pretty good, right? Super genius level. So smart that people started, at a very young age, started calling him God right? So he turns 22. He takes over the empire from his dad, Philip II. And if you, someone has told you for a long time you're a god, guess what you believe? I'm a god, right? Smart, smart kid. So he goes out and his dad had been beat by Darius III, the Medo-Persian empire ruler. And he was mad. 
So he gets this small army together, 35,000 people. The, Darius brings this massive lumbering army together at the Battle of Issus in 335 BC, somehow against like 10 to 1 odds, not quite that, 8 to 1 odds, Alexander the Great routes the Medo-Persian Empire and then goes on a rampage, just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going, goes all the way from Europe, all the way to the Indus River in 10 years, just phenomenal, and brings in what we call today the Hellenistic Age, where he spreads the, the thinking of Aristotle, essentially, that Aristotle had poured into him to the world. And you have these great people, Euclid, the mathematician, like his mathematics are still known to this day. You have Aristarchus, who discovered the heliocentric solar system 1,800 years before Copernicus. He knew about it way, way before. You have just this incredible time right then, right? He knew about the, the like there's flat earth deniers today. Have you seen them? The guy in the rocket ship? Like these people knew this 1,800 years ago. Come on, give me this, give, it, give me a break, right? So just this brilliant expansion of the Greek language, Koine Greek. Guess what the New Testament is written in? Koine Greek. We have Alexander the Great to thank for the way the Bible is written today, right? So he, though, at 33, he's in the palace of King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. He's weeping that there's nothing left to defeat. Ends up either getting drunk and sick and dying, or some people say one of his generals poisoned him and he died. He's cut off, just like it tells us in verse number eight. And out of his empire, it's divided into four people. There are four main generals of Alexander the Greek, 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 and each one of them gets a little chunk, right? Cassander gets a chunk, Lysimachus gets a chunk, Ptolemy gets a chunk, and Seleucus gets a chunk. Two of them, Ptolemy and Seleucus, Turkey and Egypt. And guess when they go to battle, guess where they meet a lot? Israel. Boom, there's constantly this, they're just the tromping ground. When one army will go up and fight the other, just they go right through destruction in Israel. It's not good for them. Rome comes, essentially you know what Rome did? Rome was like, dude, this system really works. This Hellenistic system really works. Let's just change the names. They literally just changed the names of the gods of the Greeks and made them Roman gods. That's all they did. It's like Apple and Android, right? It's like Samsung and Apple. Hey, Apple, that's a great idea. Let's just change the name of it. It's essentially what they did. They just built their platform right over the top of the Hellenistic world. And that's why um, really Rome was so successful, just kind of came in with a better system, right? So this all happens. We know this. Then out of one of them, very important. This is, this is these two empires. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars of it, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of hosts, probably the high priest. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, the high priest. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, the temple. And a host will be given over to it because with the regular burnt offering, because transgression, and it will throw to the ground truth. And it will act and prosper. And I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings and the transgression that makes desolation given over to the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evening and mornings, that's the evening sacrifice, morning sacrifice, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Sunday, we looked at this. Um, 99.9% of commentaries agree it's Antiochus Epiphanes. He is a little horn that rises out of the Greek empire, out of the, the Ptolemy part of the Greek empire, and he does all this kind of stuff, right? He's, he's the archetype, I would argue, of this kind of a ruler, so the one question might be, what is the 2,300 evenings and mornings? Um, if you divide that by two, because it's a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice, they were cut off by Antiochus Epiphanes. He got rid of the temple, got rid of all that kind of worship. We're not doing that anymore. And it essentially lasted for just over three years, which would be 2,300 sacrifices. So it appears that's the number. For 2,300 sacrifices, the temple is not functioning correctly. 
until he's driven back out, right? So verse 15, hopefully I'll be able to wrap this up well. Are you feeling like you're drinking out of a fire hose right now? That's my plan, so I think it's working. (laughs) When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. I bet you did. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he spoke to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. And he said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of the Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between its eyes is the first king. And as for the horn that was broken in its place, four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of evening and mornings has been told and is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for many days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Okay. This guy, I believe it's Antiochus Epiphanes, is an archetype of evil. I think you can kind of learn some things that will probably be repeated. In my understanding of prophecy, they're going to be repeated at some point. And I think they actually are repeated, okay? So we know that Antiochus Epiphanes does what's called the abomination of desolation. We know Jesus says there's another one coming. So Jesus already has said, this guy's an archetype. The way he acts is going to be repeated again. He is a a pattern, if you would, if you don't know what archetype is. He's a pattern of what evil does, all right? So things to note. Number one, verse 23, he comes out of their kingdom. Out of the Medo-Persian slash Greek kingdoms that I just said, he's out of them. It cannot be anybody after that. So there are people that make conjecture and say, it's somebody coming. No, it's not. It had to be out of the Medo-Persian Greek empires that are not here anymore. You don't need, you don't need, does anyone here know a Mede? No, why? Because they don't exist anymore, right? So it, it has to be Antiochus Epiphanes. He's the only one that fits. Number two, look at verse 24. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. What does that mean? There are some that argue It's speaking about the fact that he rides the coattails of Alexander the Great, right? He gets his empire because Alexander the Great defeated the world, and he just gets a quarter of it. That's one way to look at it. I personally think it's a demonic power, that he is empowered, and the reason why he has such rage against God and against God's people is because there is a demonic power behind him. And I think we neglect that too often, that we are in a very safe country, in a very safe city relatively, and we forget, man, really evil things happen all the time throughout our world, all the time. Two books I'll recommend, one of them is called Reviving Old Scratch by this guy who is a professor of psychology, actually, who said he had given up on the belief in demons and all this kind of stuff until he started working in a prison, and they wrote that book. Oh my goodness, there's real evil. The other one is M. Scott Peck. You got to be a little bit discerning with M. Scott Peck. I understand that. But it's called People to Lie. It's one of the best books I've ever read. Where he is just going through clinical things with people and he meets an individual. He just said, this individual was pure evil. 
there was something behind this individual that was like no one else I'd ever met. And I'm dealing with evil people all the time. He was very unique. And that's when he began to question everything. He's like, the fact that we don't acknowledge evil is the worst disservice we do to people. And we need to be telling them, look out for evil, right? Look out for evil. And in chapter 10, we'll actually talk a lot about the spirit realm because that's what it talks about. We'll probably do it on a Sunday, right? Number two, verse 24, he succeeds. He shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. He destroys, he succeeds. Does evil have success? Yeah. Ever had evil succeed in your life and wonder, God, what's going on? I have. You should read Psalm 73. Because it's the psalmist, he begins by saying, God, I know you're good. God, I know you're good, but why am I watching all this evil everywhere? Why am I watching the wicked get away with wickedness? Why am I watching murderers get ahead? Why am I watching the greedy trample on people? Why? Right, just verse after verse after verse of why, God? Why should this happen? Ever feel that way? Watching the 24-7 news cycle? Why in North Korea is this guy able to do this to these people? Why is he getting away with that for generations now? Why is that happening? Why are the Coptic Christians, you know the Coptic Christians are almost gone right now. One of the oldest branches of Christianity that we have, they've almost been completely annihilated in Egypt. Why is that happening? I know Coptic Christians. I love them. They're almost extinct, being systematically murdered. God, why is that happening? The Yazidi women and what ISIS did to almost the entire population of Yazidi women, rounded them up and used them as brides. God, why is that happening? How about China now with their social score? Have you heard of that? That every Chinese person is going to be given a social score and that social score will determine what you can do in life. So they have this, have you, have you heard of WeChat? By, it's a Chinese app. Okay, WeChat is unbelievable. So if you took Google and you took Facebook and you took Instagram and you took Amazon and Uber and Twitter and PayPal and your bank account and you wrap them all into one single app, that would be WeChat. And it's the biggest app in China. Now, why would they have something like that? Because you can control everything then. You're able to mine all the data you want for every single citizen that has that app on their phone. And then you give them a score. And that score determines if they can get government job. That score determines if they can get a passport. That score determines if they could get this kind of money or assistance. That score does. Guess what they're already finding out about Christians? <clears throat> Their scores are going down. It's a new caste system. It's evil. It's inherently evil. And you say, God, why would you let this happen? The greatest revival happening right now is in China. More people are believing in China than any other place on the planet. And guess where the attack is happening? China. And you say, God, evil, why is it happening? It's like Revelation 13. They're going to have to be marked to buy and sell pretty soon. You're not, if you don't get the right WeChat score, you're not buying or selling. That's where it's going. It's scary. That's Psalm 73. God, why in the world? I know you're good. <sighs> I don't see it. Until he gets to verse 17. And he says this, and then I went into your sanctuary and I understood their end. I got it. This earth right now is temporary. It's passing away. There will be an end to these cycles. It's not gonna be beast after beast after beast, horn after horn after horn after horn. Eventually, there's going to be an end. And that's what you see in verse 25. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. That's a danger right there. <laughs> and without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall rise up against the prince of princes and shall be broken, but by no human hand. There's gonna be divine judgment on him and it's gonna stop him. If you know Antiochus Epiphany's story, that's what happens. When he hears that Jerusalem has been set free, you know the story, I, said, I told it on Sunday that Matt and his five kids 
drive out the empire of Antiochus Epiphanes completely. This renegade, brilliant, beautiful. They light the candles, right? They do that whole thing. Brilliant. When he hears he's lost Jerusalem, he curses God, clutches his heart, falls out of his chariot, and dies. Is that divine judgment? Seems like it. Broken, but without hands. You're done. You're done, right? So what does this all mean? Let me give you three things that I think it means. Number one, you got to put yourself in Daniel's shoes. He's looking forward and he's seeing, oh my goodness, there's going to be Babylon and there's going to be the Medo-Persians and there's going to be the Greeks and there's going to be this terrifying, terrifying, beastly thing and it's going to have 10 kings coming out of that and they're really bad. Oh, right? That's why he's so alarmed. He just sees down the corridor of history Evil, evil, evil. It's like this. God's come and says, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Which one do you want first? I'm going to give you the bad news first, but here's the good news. The good news is I'm bringing a permanent, righteous, beautiful, brilliant, everlasting kingdom, and that's coming. We live, the Bible says, in a present evil age. Totally. But do we have hope? Yes. That God is bringing in a permanent, righteous, lasting empire that will never end, where things will be done correctly, where we will rule and reign with him, where every tear will be wiped away, where death and sorrow will be no more. That's coming. That's the good news. That's the good news, and that's the bad news. Number two, all these things are to be mirrors for us. Is America a better empire? Fifty-two million babies might say no. Has technology made us better? Silicon Valley would be say we're better. I think we just got better at killing people. Like we have perfected how to kill people. Are we better? I don't know. I don't know. As Christians, we should always be suspicious of government. I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean, listen, government has the capacity to do good things, but it also has the capacity to be influenced demonically or by power. Power just corrupts people. So we should always be suspicious, even of our own government. In the ba- I'm not saying in a bad way, just knowing our government can do evil too. And as a Christian, I have a higher allegiance. And if systems are oppressing people, it is my job as a believer to speak out against that system, even though it might be my government, because I have a higher allegiance. And that allegiance is to my King Jesus. So I have a good suspicion of government. And then thirdly and lastly, Jesus uses this story. It's amazing to me. So if you know John chapter 10, Jesus shows up at the Feast of Dedication. Guess what the Feast of Dedication remembered? Antiochus Epiphanes being driven out of the temple and the temple being dedicated and the Maccabeans taking one day's oil, lighting the lamp, and it staying lit for eight days. That's the Feast of Dedication. So Jesus is there, there at that. That's the place the temple was defiled because Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the God manifest, came in there and says, I'm God, not yours, right? He'd come in there and declared, I'm God. Jesus comes in on that feast. Guess what he does in the temple? I'm God. I mean, just the irony of that right there. You're like, what in the I mean, he's poking the bear, right? They're celebrating the feast that drove out a madman who claimed to be God. And here comes Jesus. And in verse 30, he says, hey, by the way, I'm God. And guess what they do? They pick up stones to stone him. And what does he do? He says, why are you killing me? Is it for the good works I've done? Is it for the healings I've done? Is it for the love that I've shown? Here's what Jesus was doing. He was pressing them like this. Antiochus Epiphanes comes in and he wants to rule by might, by beastly power. Is that what I've done? How have I come to you? I've come declaring to you a new kingdom, a kingdom of healing, a kingdom of love, a kingdom of power. I didn't come with crushing, you must serve me. I came to win you with my love 
win you with a new kingdom. That's what he was actually announcing. I have a different kind of kingdom. It's the kingdom that you and I are to announce every single day to our city. We're not here to tell you we're right or force our values into your face or you know, go down and, and protest something. We're here to do it a different way, that we use the weapons of love, that we don't overcome evil with evil, we overcome evil with good. That's what Jesus was coming to say. I'm God and I'm representing the true heart of power. And power comes not through might, it comes through love. It's brilliant. Read John 10. Now that you know what Jesus is actually doing at the Feast of Dedication, it changes everything in that chapter. You're like, oh my goodness, I see what he was doing right there. He was presenting himself as a new kind of king, a new archetype, not the archetype of power and demonic, and that I'm presenting a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom of true power. It's absolutely brilliant. It's awesome. I know you have a lot of questions on this, but I'm out of time. 7.31. You can email me. We'll talk about more. This this, these next chapters, they just kind of cycle back on the same ideas over and over and over, um, adding intrigue to them. So fascinating section here. So Jesus, may we go from here with allegiance to your kingdom. That you came demonstrating the heart of the Father towards us, not wanting to crush us in anger and force us to obey but to win us with your love. Win us with your sacrifice. And so may each one of us go from here today following you. Not forcing people, demanding things, but winning through goodness and love and kindness and giving and sacrifice. So fill us with your spirit. Empower us to walk out of here as dads, moms, neighbors, co-workers that do it like you did. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.